to meet some new people. Uh, also, come and grab Vic or myself or the, the pastors here. We'd love to be able to get to know you. Um, we, we preach through the Bible here at, at Hope Church, so we're, we're doing that now. We're going through the, series, uh, the book of Mark, uh, verse by verse and line by line, chapter by chapter. We just, we just preach and learn whatever God puts in front of us in the Scriptures. That, that's how we do it here. And so today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. I want to point you there. What we see is that Jesus is, is on the road to Jerusalem. He's on the road to the cross. So Jesus has been going around Galilee. He ducked down to Jerusalem briefly. He's been mostly around Galilee, in the northern areas, around the, uh, uh, the lakes and villages up there. And he's been doing miracles and teaching the crowds. But now he's on his way towards Jerusalem because he's going to die very shortly. We're only a few months, maybe weeks off of Jesus being killed on that cross. Look at verse, look at verse 32. We see that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking out ahead of them. I love that. I love that going to his death, going to his butchery, going to the cross, Jesus leads the way. He's not afraid of what God has put before him, and he's definitely not afraid of the human rulers and spiritual authorities and, and people who would, who would try to make him fear or be afraid. He is out in front of the pack, and he is marching. Luke tells us that his face was set like flint towards the cross. In other words, his face was like rock in that direction. He wasn't going to be changed. You can't walk up to Mount Rushmore or a statue and change the look on the face. It's set like that in stone, literally, and Jesus was the same. He'd received a commission of the Father to go to the earth and die on the cross, and now he's leading his disciples, and he's told them over and over again, and they're all very aware that it's not going to go well in Jerusalem. As, as confused as they are about the whole dying and resurrecting thing, and they're pretty confused, they know, because they've been seeing it, that the Pharisees are trying to get him killed, that the scribes are trying to get him chucked out that the crowds that the, the Pharisees convince are hostile towards him, and they've seen how Jesus keeps on picking fights with the biggest guy in the room. He's, he's just that gutsy. And so they know if we go to Jerusalem, it's, it's going to be dangerous for him, one, and it's going to be dangerous for us. There's already been people thrown out of the Jewish churches, right, out of the synagogues because they dared defend Jesus. Not even his, his disciples, just people around the countryside, the rule has gone out, you defend this guy Jesus, you're out of the synagogues. And so it says then, while he's leading the charge, he's walking up with his, with his soldiers, as it were. He's making a charge on Jerusalem like David did with his 30 men. He's walking up to Jerusalem, and they were amazed. The disciples, the, the 12 who were walking with him, they were amazed to be looking at the danger coming and the look on Jesus' face, spirit given boldness that then is given to the disciples in Acts, right? Stephen's face shines like an angel's and, and everyone is amazed. Jesus has that spirit-given boldness. The disciples were amazed and those who followed, right? The crowds who were walking with Jesus, those who followed were afraid. They were afraid to be going where Jesus was going. They were afraid. Just looking at Jesus' boldness was striking to them. And they were afraid. Jesus is now on his road to the cross. And let's keep on reading what happens after that. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the living God. And taking the 12 again, 
he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Right, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Just say yes, no take backs, cross your heart, hope to die, all of those tricks. You have to say yes to this. And he said to them, what do you want? <laughs> he knows these guys. What do you want for me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And, and Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, authoritative, precious word in our midst this morning. Wow, what a, what a contrast here between James and John and their cousin Jesus. We see two very distinct paths to glory here. We see the human path to glory that James and John take, that we would naturally take, that the religions of the world and the, the, the systems of the world naturally lay out before us. And then we see Jesus' path to glory that cannot be comprehended, that is a mystery until it is revealed through the word that took the world by storm and confused everybody who came in contact with it who had not been born again by the Spirit. This, Jesus' path to messianic, divine kingdom glory, is unlike anything that mankind had planned or thought. Number one, we can see that James and John, and we're really going to start there in the, in, the, in the business of James and John coming up to Jesus and asking what they ask. We're going to see, first of all, their selfish ambition to rule. So here's the situation. They, they had been amongst the 12. They were walking up to Jerusalem, and, and Jesus kept on talking about dying and rising, and it wasn't all very clear to them, but they believed the Old Testament. They had some faith, more faith than some people today have. They believed that Jesus was going to be victorious and actually establish his kingdom. And they said, you know, they, they, they came up to him. Now, the other versions of the gospel tell us that they brought their, their mum who was uh, 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 Jesus' auntie Salome, right? So they're trying to butter Jesus up. They bring in auntie Sal. 
and they, 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 get, uh, they get them, uh, her to sort of uh, talk to Jesus, like she's always been around, since she, she's the favorite auntie, always sneaking treats, all that sort of thing, and they bring in Auntie Sal, and they sort of push her to the front, and then they also ask with her, and Jesus, we've been thinking, and we, it sounds great, I'm reading Isaiah, it's awesome, this picture of a, of a throne, but we've been thinking, and it's sort of, I don't know, it doesn't fit just one throne. What we've thought, we've sort of put together a committee, James and John and I, uh, and, uh, and, and, and we've decided that three thrones would be phenomenal. First of all, better symmetry. Third of all, you can make like a nice streamlined V. It'll look great. Angels will love it. Thirdly, three's a good number. It's the Trinity. Let's, that's a positive thing, and it's a lucky number in China. So there's, there's nothing wrong with three thrones. Let's do that, Jesus. And me and John will be on the side of you. We'll be there. You just need to say yes, blank check, just say yes, don't think, sign it quickly, let's go. <clears throat> they had a selfish ambition to rule. In other words, they wanted the authority that was only rightfully Jesus. They wanted the authority that was only rightfully Jesus, or they wanted power and authority that had not been delegated to them. This is the very definition of tyranny. Now, that's a word that's been thrown around a lot lately. Pretty good thing to do. The word tyranny is to mean that, that maybe it's a husband, maybe it's a, a, a pastor, maybe it's a, a civil ruler, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's whatever it is, when anyone who has divinely ordained and instituted authority, right, legitimate authority, then starts grasping and taking more power than is theirs, desiring and taking and acting like they have more glory or power or authority than is theirs. We call that tyranny. Right? When the state starts doing things that they have no right to do, that God did not establish them to do, we call that tyranny and, and we, we, we peacefully resist. But how many people would have taken pause, maybe in our own recent months, when we've experienced some level of that, We've seen it around the globe. How many Christians would stop and take a lesson for themselves? Because the same spirit that inspires people of dust to desire greater power so that they can exercise authority over their people for their own glory, that is the same spirit that makes Christians competitive with one another in ministry. It is that which desires more glory, more power than God has ordered or ordained for us. That is the spirit of self-glorification, selfish ambition, Philippians chapter 2 calls it. Those who, who burn inside when your friend or your churchmate is exalted, maybe in ministry, maybe they're recognized, maybe God just pours out blessing through what they're doing and you burn on the inside. You're just sick of them continually being exalted like Joseph's brothers. And in your heart, like Cain, like Joseph's brothers, you burn. That's the heart of James and John. It's the selfish ambition that desires the authority. <clears throat> the root sin is, is the desire of glorifying self instead of glorifying God and having others glorify you, of course. James 4 talks of this when he says, it's just so simple. This is a human, uh, natural, universal problem. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Okay, so you pick whatever. The workplace, the church, the family, whatever. What causes the fights? Why are you quarreling? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You desire what you don't have. 
You want other people's things. You want glory that God has not given to you. And so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain it, so you fight and you quarrel. This is the human, human problem. Yes, it's rife in parliaments and on thrones, and it's rife in the pews and in the pulpits. We need to be on watch against both of them. Jesus' response then, now we'll skip a little bit further down to verses 42 and 44. The response to the selfish ambition, the response to the desire for glory, is what Jesus says in verse 42 to verse 44. He says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise their authority. That is, they, they pump their authority just to be able to push people around. That's what it means by exercise. There's not a need. They don't use their godly instituted authority. They just like using their strong arms, so they whack people around with it for their own sake. That's what they do. They, ex they exhaust their life to get to the top, and when they're there, they extract from people the praise and they, they exact onto people obedience that makes them feel amazing. That, that's what people do, right? So, so no more talking of, you don't read Romans 13 enough when, when pastors or people step up and go, geez, rulers today are just dang evil. Look at what they're doing. And, and pastors or people with zero spines say, hey, settle down, be respectful, don't say anything about rulers' sins. And we go, Jesus doesn't mind it. He just says, normal rule for anyone that's not a Christian in any authority, and it's also a danger for the Christians. If they're in authority, this is their, motive, uh, their mode of operation. They exact authority. They're sinful. They're tyrants. So we shouldn't be surprised, but I love what Jesus says here. He says, that's the way of the world. I'll even more what he says. It says those who are considered rulers in the ESV, uh, another version might have, or, or an, an honest translation is, these so-called rulers, right? You can see Jesus using quotation marks. Because these rulers, so-called, these people who, contrary to common thought, do not have unlimited authority just because they're in civil magistrate. Jesus is saying there's such a thing as proper rule and such a thing as illegitimate ruling and authority. Just because they make a law doesn't mean you have to obey. It doesn't mean it's godly and right in their realm of authority. He's saying these so-called rulers, they think they've got the right to do what they're doing. And they don't. But that's their pattern. That's their habit. That's what it is to be a Gentile, unchristian, not kingdom of God type ruler. The Christians, disciples, my twelve Jesus is saying, not among you. It shall not be. This is a commandment that he's making. It shall not be so among you. You should not be constantly grasping for more, stretching your authority, trying to exact praise from other people. But rather, Jesus says, those who are the servant of all, the slave of all, the last of all will be first. Those who exhaust themselves for God will be exalted by God. If you want exaltation, spend your life dripping sweat, blood and tears, exhausting yourself for God's service, he will give exaltation to those. The greatest are the hardest working. 
not always, and in fact almost never, necessarily the ones most seen, but the ones who spend the hours, the effort, the prayers, the energy for the kingdom of God. Do not find themselves up top, glorified by men. Do not strive to get to the top of the ladder. Do not elbow others to, to get to the front. Do not climb to the top of the pyramid, but rather those who serve. Those who are last of all, those who are least of all, those who are the hardest working. Jesus says those are the ones that are glorified. So, the sin of tyranny, grasping for more power, is common outside the church and inside the church and throughout church history. It has led to persecution from the outside. We're all aware that the church in Romania, in Russia, in China, in North Korea, in Scotland, in England, in the continent, anywhere the church has gone, blood has been shed by tyrants trying to rule over the church in ways they should not do. And the church has never been broken. In fact, not a, not a single local church has ever closed down because of persecution from the outside tyrants. Not a one. Jesus' promise holds them fast and firm. But many churches have been destroyed by the tyranny or the self-glorification of those within the church. Those churches can't last a generation. Jesus seeks to put them out himself, we're told, in the first few letters, uh, first few chapters of Revelation. Right? I think of the Scottish Covenanters back in the 1500s, 1600s, late 1600s, when the, the killing times were on, when the, the English Parliament was, was seeking out these Scottish Covenanters who would not bend the knee to the king and say the king is the head of the church. They would not say that. For that, they were being hunted and killed and drowned. Young women, old women, young men, old men. Butchered. 18,000 of them in the highlands of Scotland. And it did not slow down or stop the church. Tyrants can't break what Jesus is building. But Jesus stops building with people who are tyrants. Who desire glory and power and honor. What the outside world cannot do, we can corrode on the inside if we are not careful for Jesus' commandment here. His warning. It's natural to human beings. Keep God on it, every one of you. And we see the next part in, in, in the problem of James and John's heart. As we sort of, Mark gives us this x-ray into James and John at the moment. Look at verse 38. And we see the next part of their desire, the next sort of cause or root problem that they had is that they wanted a freedom from suffering. They had a pride in their heart that thought that they deserved to be free from suffering. So that one desire was, we want to be glorified and free from serving others. And this desire is that we want to be on a throne and therefore be free from suffering. And on both accounts. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. And it's, it's understandable. I mean, they had seen Herod. We, we've gone through before in the story of Mark, the, the pomp of Herod and Felix and Agrippa, how they had long robes, glorious clothes, jewelry and, and accolades from crowds and bands that would sing for them and, and huge halls dedicated to their name. It was very tempting. To desire that, to want just at least a taste of that, 
I mean, I mean when, when you're that exalted, what that exaltation means is you don't live like a normal person with your feet on the ground. When you're exalted on a throne, you do not have to get up early to go and get your crops. You do not have to keep an eye on the sun so that you can walk a couple of miles to get fresh water in the cool of the day. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to be concerned about the simple sicknesses that you get from a, from a little cut on the hand and an infection that, that kills you. No, you have the best medical uh, uh, care that is available at the day when you're on the throne. To be on the throne means separation from suffering as much as humanly possible. And they felt the weight from the other side of that. There's not a single Jew, James and John included, there's not a single Jew in all of Judea that wouldn't have known somebody, maybe a cousin, distant relative, friend, that didn't know somebody who had a dead son, an infant's grave at the back of their house, because that king, Herod, when he heard the birth of Jesus, butchered every young boy, two to three and under. They felt the real, real reality, the, the pain of suffering in this life. They've seen what royal guys get to do. You click a finger, everyone obeys. The whole nation has to shuffle around and do a census because you want to count heads. Everybody dies if you don't want them on the playing field. That kind of authority and power is not just tempting, it's, it's understandable. The people suffering like they suffered, who had been nobodies all of their life, it's understandable. And they come to Jesus and say, can we please, can you just give to us what everybody wants, what we've never been able to have? A ticket to freedom from suffering. Here's what they ask, and we see here what Jesus says. Jesus' response is, in verse 38, <clears throat> let me get there. So grant us to sit there, Jesus says in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. He's so kind like that. Jesus just tells them, you are clueless, James and John. Cousins, your sons of thunder, your heads are full of clouds. You are clueless, guys. You have no idea what you are asking. What they wanted, what they thought, right? He's just telling them, you don't get how the politics of the kingdom of God work. The politics of mankind, you see all the time. You pay the right guys, you bribe the right dudes. The more you get exalted, the more free you are from suffering and hard work. That's not how politics works in the kingdom of God. It's the slaves that are exalted. It's the hardest workers that are glorified. And it's those who suffer that are enthroned. In Revelation, don't we see that? It's those who are butchered who receive thrones in heaven. It's those who die for the testimony of the Lamb, who love their lives not unto death, but are given crowns eternal. Jesus is just saying, you don't get the, the ground. You don't understand the roadmap. You don't understand the politics of the kingdom of God. You have no idea what you are asking. You don't understand. And he says to them, to sort of prove to them that they don't understand, he says, are you able, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, what he's asking is, in the drinking, right? The, the drinking is an Old Testament, an Old Testament theme that could be of, of blessing or of cursing. It was a picture that you would receive into yourself everything that God is giving to you. 
And so we read in Psalm 16 and other Psalms that there is, there is blessing at the right hand of God and that he, we, we, we drink and my cup is overflowing and we receive that blessing, right? The cup of blessing. And yet there's also this other picture of the cup of wrath that God slides across the table to his enemies and he makes them drink it down to its dregs. At this moment, we're not talking about the cup of blessing. Jesus is referring to the cup that he prays about in Gethsemane when he says, Lord, God, Father, if there is any other way, may this cup pass from me. This cup. He was talking about his death, his sacrifice, his atonement, but particularly the cup of wrath that he would have to absorb, the suffering that every sin deserved, the, the, the anger, the just condemnation of God. That's what he was going to have to take into himself and drink to its dregs. And Jesus was saying, are you able to drink that? And the baptism, I'm, I'm going to be plunged into something. It's called the wrath of God. It's called the grave. It's called death for all of God's elect. I'm going to be plunged there and overcome, consumed and dead and buried. Are you able to be baptized with that? And their response is, sure thing. Absolutely. Doesn't sound hard at all. Because what they're thinking is the cup of, of blessing that the, the Messiah drinks and the cup of blessing that the kings are given and the priests are given. It's all awesome. We want that. Of course we want the king's cup. What could be in the king's cup but blessing? And of course we want to jump in the king's pool. What could be in there but the freshest and, and most refreshing of waters? They think that to desire the royal divinity or the divine royalty is to desire a freedom of suffering. And they just cannot be more back to front. If you want the divinely given royalty, the road is costly. The road is suffering. The baptism is difficult. The cup is harsh. They say, yeah, we're able to do that. No worries. Give us the suffering-free life, not understanding that messianic royalty does not mean freedom from suffering. Messianic royalty means suffering. Look what he says in verse 39. He says, <clears throat> uh, halfway through verse 39, he says, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, he's saying, you know what, James and John... You don't know the future yet. Let me speak something over your life. I've, I, I feel God giving me a word for you, brother. You're both going to die. You're going to suffer. It's going to be horrible. Name and claim that. James would be the first apostle to die. John would be the last apostle to die and would suffer his whole life long. These brothers asking to just bracket Jesus on the thrones. They're going to bracket the apostolic office as those who suffer and die. That's what Jesus says. You know, you are going to get baptized with death. It's going to be horrible. James, you're going to be beheaded in Jerusalem. John, you're literally going to be baptized in boiling oil. That, that's what one of the Caesars does to John, church history tells us. It's going to be bad for you. And yet there's a sense in which they don't drink Jesus' cup and they don't get baptized with Jesus' baptism. Because Jesus' cup is the wrath of God. Jesus' baptism is, is death and punishment. But every Christian who suffers, every apostle who died, died under the blessing of God. 
died with the, the beatific vision or the, the, the sense of God's smile, his countenance, his shining upon them and blessing them. There's no Christian who dies under the wrath of God. Jesus died under the wrath of God and cried out that he had he'd experienced as that human mediator the abandonment of God. Well, Jesus prophesied, yes, you will suffer. And this is what we see in baptism, isn't it? The, the reason we suffer is because Jesus will suffer. The reason we picture death in baptism is because Jesus died for us. Verse 45 says, <clears throat> and this is the, the reason they'll suffer. The reason you will get baptized with that death and drink that death, the reason you will suffer as apostles is because, verse 45, I will suffer and die like that as your Messiah. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to suffer. I've come not to get a throne on earth that the devil tried to tempt me with. I've come to receive a throne from the Father, but that comes at the cost of my blood, which is given as a ransom for you. And therefore, when they desire messianic royalty, they are desiring suffering. They desire messianic glory. They are, they, they are uh, desiring suffering. And this is what we see in our baptism. And we're going to celebrate this soon. But what we recognize in our baptism is that as Jesus went forward and was killed and died and buried and then rose to eternal life, so we in baptism are identifying with that. Jesus did that for me. His life was the life I could never live. His death was the death that I deserve to die. His resurrection is my eternal life that I share in even now and will go to after I die. That's what baptism is. I die with Christ, I rise with Christ, I live with Christ. And as Jesus lived, so also we will, in suffering and in pain. Even though Ephesians 2 tells us we have right now as Christians been raised up and seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. We're there and yet we suffer here. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They wanted freedom from suffering, but Jesus said, you're with me now. You're with me now. There is no glory apart from suffering. It, it sort of reminds us of that story of the old liberal seminary professor who was, who was trying to get rid of all those parts of the Bible that he didn't like. So he'd, he'd find the bits about wrath and he'd tear them out and the bits about exclusive uh, ways to heaven and he'd tear them out and all the bits about, uh, you know, uh, uh, very bigoted sexuality and he'd tear them out and all the bits about, you know, uh, husband's rule and he tears them out. He just didn't like it. He was very progressive and his wife could hear him swearing and cursing and yelling from his room, his study, and she runs up and she goes, honey, what's wrong? And he said, darn it, love, these, these darned printers, don't they understand my, my, my mission here? They've, they've, they've ruined it all. They've printed the parts I hate on the back of the page of the parts that I love, I can't tear one out without taking the other. I can't leave one without taking the other. So it is. Glory and suffering are printed on the same pages in our Bible. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot get one or lose one without getting or losing the other. They are, they are combined in no better place than in the person of Jesus Christ. So, one, they, they had selfish ambition to rule. They wanted freedom from service. Jesus said, you can't have that. 
They said, okay, well, we want the throne to be free from suffering. And Jesus said, you can't have that. To have the throne is to suffer. <coughs> and now let, let's just look at those, those three words that they speak to Jesus. And let's look at their, their arrogant overconfidence. When in verse 39, they say, <clears throat> I'm in the book of John. I'm in the book of Peter. Which one of these tabs is mine? There we go. That's John again. Let's try again. Third time lucky. There you go. Mark chapter 10. Are you with me? You there? <clears throat> you don't have three cool tabs in your Bibles, do you? See, this is, this is the, the privileged privilege problem that we have when you have three beautiful tabs in your, in your Bible. Anyway, let's keep going. Mark 10 and verse 39. Look what he says. He says, uh, in verse 38, are you able to do all of this? And they say, with their arrogant self-confidence, we are able. We are able. What we see in James and John is, is the reality that if you don't have a gut-level trust and delight, they're not always the same thing, so a knowledge of and a trust in and a delight in the absolute, utter sovereignty of God, when you don't have that, you're driven to either crushing anxiety or arrogant overconfidence. When you don't believe that God has, before the foundations of the world, established and preordained every single dust particle and where it will go, that there is not even a single sparrow that, that, that starves from not having seed enough to peck up on the ground, not a single bird dies without God's preordained, perfect, meticulous sovereignty, providentially planning, and before the foundations of the world, ordaining every single thing. If you don't just know that theologically and trust it to your gut and delight in a father who does all of that, if you don't have it, you will be driven at different times to anxiety that crushes your soul or self-confidence that shows your arrogance. And we see both in, in James and John. First of all, they're worried because we've got things like, I don't know, eternal salvation, uh, the victory of the kingdom of God, our rewards for everything we do. These are eternally weighty matters and they're on our shoulders. No one else is carrying, us, carrying them for us. No one else is watching out for us. We've got to do it ourselves. And in anxiety, in soul-crushing anxiety, they're driven to despair and come up to Jesus and beg, can you please just let us order it from now if you can't assure us we want the thrones, we've planned our eternity, we've planned our life. There you go, there's the plan. Anxiety, the things we need to advise God. Or, in the next verse, overconfidence, that thinks we're able to do what only God can do. And they say, yeah, whatever you think we need to do, whatever you think the plan holds, we can do it, we are able, no one else has got our backs, so we've had to get ourselves, we are able. If you lack this trust, you're driven to one of those two things. When you don't have a pervasively sovereign God to trust, those eternal realities fall on your shoulders. It all comes down to you, let alone the non-eternal things, like what you're going to eat, how the finances are going, how the grades are going. 
James and John do both of, both of these things. If I don't look out for me, who will? And if I can't do it myself, what hope is there? And Jesus shows us in verse 40 where our trust ought to be. Look at verse 40. He's told them, yep, you'll die. Yep, you'll suffer. That's coming, the baptism and the drink. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is getting at the foreordained plan of God that is predetermined. And he's telling them, God has predetermined the thrones, the rewards, the roles, and the offices. Don't miss that. God has already planned what rewards people will get, and he has perfect accounting of every drop of your suffering. You don't need to play the omnipotent God. You don't need to play the card of planning meticulously everything in the future. God has got that. He has predetermined who will rule and reign and receive rewards. And the psalmist tells us he keeps every day written down in his book and every tear that we shed in a bottle. God is a good accountant of your sufferings. But it's not as if he's just watching our lives in full HD live. It's not even that good. It's not as if he's, he's got perfect omniscience now. It's that even before you were born, those tears were recorded. Even before the world was born, those books were written. God has determined beforehand what you will suffer, how people will hurt you, what things you will lose, what sacrifices you will need to make for the kingdom. He knew it all. He planned it all. He wrote down it all. And he will reward every last ounce of it. He will be in debt to nobody. Jesus says, in your suffering, in your persecution, in your sacrifice, know two things. This was prepared for me long ago for my good. And... Secondly, whatever reward God decides to give me, in this life or in the next, I will joyfully receive that. Christians who understand that God is sovereign, we are servants, we are promised thrones and we are promised glory, yet we do not grasp it now, we do not get anxious or overly confident now, we trust in God, we rely on God, we rest in God, and we receive whatever humble tasks he gives to us. If we are like the blanket that is thrown out on the ground so a donkey carrying the king can trod over us, then so be it. We are a pavement in the path to Jesus' glory. If we're a palm branch that is torn down, thrown to the ground, and trampled, if it's on the path to give Jesus his glory, we must be satisfied. So we see all of that in Jesus' lessons that he's saying to them. To James and John and to the ten who just get jealous that they asked first. They became indignant because they were more holy. They just weren't as quick. Jesus speaks to the two. He speaks to the twelve. He speaks to us all of those lessons. This is how the kingdom of God works. But he shows us most importantly through his example. And in that we go back to verse 33. Because just before James and John asked this, 
the perfect setup for the idiotic blunder that we all fall into also. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, verse 33. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus is not just giving, and don't think of Christianity or the Word of God or the Gospel. If, if you need to hear this today, don't just think that it's filled with good advice, and it's a better way to live, and, and Jesus came to give us a better example, really great moral teacher. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's not instruction. It's proclamation. It's not what to do. It's what has already been done. And Jesus is not saying, here's a better way to live, get yourself into the kingdom, but I will establish a kingdom in my blood so that by grace alone, you believe and are saved on the accounting of my death. You are forgiven on the account of my death. You are made righteous on the account of my life lived according to God's law. And then having been brought into that kingdom by grace, you will live like the king who died, who was last, and who gave his life as a ransom. That's the order. Don't get it back to front. But by his perfect example, Jesus showed us that he would die and suffer fully knowing what was coming. Look, in those verses, Jesus calls himself the son of man. We frequently have to say this because it's easily misunderstood or forgotten that he's not there referring to his humanity. Like sometimes we say son of God because he's God. Sometimes we say son of man because he's man. That's actually not what is meant. It's a reference back to Daniel 7, which is a prophecy of this one that he calls the Son of Man who will receive all authority on heaven and earth from the Father. That he will receive a throne to rule all other thrones. That he will receive a people and a kingdom that will be priests to God that will never die but be an everlasting kingdom of dominion. That's what the Son of Man receives, and Jesus says, I'm that son of man, the God-human ruler, receiving all glory, and what happens to the son of man? He dies. Not a glorious death in the battlefield with a sword in his heart, still fighting the others. No, he, he dies just about naked. He dies unrecognizable. You couldn't even tell that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He dies humiliated, spit upon, beard plucked out, flesh hanging off every bone in his body, drowning in his own blood. That's the son of man. This Jesus does not just give us good advice, he gives us the perfect example, and that which flies in the face of everything James and John had said. Look at what, look what they said. They wanted the rule and authority but Jesus said, I'm the definition of rule and authority, and I'm coming to serve. The Son of Man, you want, you guys want, you, you want the splendor and glory and freedom from suffering, but the Son of Man is coming, the, the definition of glory and splendor, and I will suffer worse than anybody else. You want glory, but the Son of Man is coming, who is the definition of glory, and yet I trust in the Father's eternal covenant. I trust in his promises to reward, and therefore I will go willingly to the cross. Can you turn as we finish to 1 Peter chapter 2? 
It bears remembering that Peter was the apostle who was really instructing Mark. The, the reason Mark had so much material to write this gospel, the first gospel written, is because Peter was his right-hand man, telling him what to write, telling him what Jesus said, telling him, dobbing on James and John, telling him what, what those guys did. And we see the, the very similar themes all throughout Mark come all throughout Peter. And in Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and following, he says about suffering, that being last, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So that's how he's different to us. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That's his example. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted the predetermined plan of God and was not anxious or overconfident, but rested in the predetermined plan of God. Verse 24, the good news of the gospel to every sinner this morning, to every person who has guilt in your soul, who is sure that God cannot accept you because you are evil and vile and guilty, and so all of us are without Jesus Christ. To you, the good news is Jesus himself bore your sins in his body on that tree of the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By the wounds that he suffered, we are made whole. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus suffered. The God of life died. The king of power was made weak. The king of glory was made humiliated to bring you back to the shepherd of your souls, to bring you back from your sin, you back from the wrath of God, you back from hell so that you can be made one with God in Jesus Christ, be a part of his kingdom that is reigned by the crucified lamb, lion, Jesus Christ. Today, repent of your sins, believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, talk to the person who brought you, or uh, Vic or myself, we would love to talk to you about the soul-saving power of Jesus Christ. Can you stand with me? We're going to pray. Then the team are going to lead us in one last song, and then we'll celebrate in baptism. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you so much for the Son of Man that you sent to receive a kingdom and glory and honor and splendor and worship and praise. And yet, God, where we are tempted to follow that in a shortcut manner, where we are tempted to receive or grasp for or demand or manipulate power for ourselves, authority, glory, recognition, Lord, we, we bring that to the cross and we're put to shame. For the Son of Man did not consider equality with God to be held onto, but willingly came down as a slave, even a slave who would die. Lord, I pray that you would make that the lifeblood of this church, the lifeblood of all those who love and follow Jesus, that we, we trust you that you will give reward. We trust in your sovereign plan and promises, but we are willing to be made low and suffer and strive and sacrifice for the sake of your church and the gospel. Father God, may you exalt Jesus this morning. May all those who are far off, who do not believe, who aren't Christians yet, who are still in their sins, would you bring them near, justify them by Christ, wash them in the blood, and make us joyful. Lord, all Christians here, would you 
Would you reassure them in their standing in Christ? Would you lift up our voices now, Lord, to give him glory and praise and honor? We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus who is enthroned. And everybody said, Amen.